You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Matthew Sitman. Uh, Matt, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Matt Sitman. Uh, I'm the associate editor of Commonwealth Magazine, and I co-host a podcast called Know Your Enemy. Um, I also write frequently for Dissent, and I'm on their editorial board. And so uh, Commonweal, Descent, and Know Your Enemy are my three big affiliations. Uh, so thanks for, thanks for coming <laughs> yeah. on. Um, so we're mainly... No problem. I'm, I'm actually an old school Blogging Heads fan. Uh, well, that's great. You know, yeah, you watched, said you... Watched years ago. You said this was uh, your lifelong dream, and it's finally come true to uh, appear I'm, on... Actually, appear on Blogging Heads. Cross this off the bucket list. Yeah, and we actually... I mean, we had, I guess, like a professional relationship roughly a decade ago, because you uh, once... We're an editor at Andrew Sullivan's blog, and we worked together then, you know, several lifetimes ago. Um, yeah, no, it's true. I was the literary editor, and uh, for a while there, we were featuring Blogging Heads content on the weekends. Yes. And so uh, you and I were the two uh, peons, you know, to our masters, Andrew and, and Bob Wright, um, <laughs> handling the the the, uh, the details of that. Yeah, this is true. And then um, – and that was for people – you know, just a throwback, uh, a flashback uh, Friday uh, for you. This, this was the, the show My Report that ran for a couple of years and was people from the um, the Yale uh, University Psychology Department. And then one of those people, uh, Lori Santos, has since become like the like one of the most famous like sort of online teacher type people because she has this course. She launched this course called like Happiness or How to Find Happiness or something, and it. You know, it's become like the most popular online course in history or something. So she, so she has, she really blew up since then. And I think Tamar Gendler is now one of the deans at Yale. So everyone is onwards and upwards yeah. <laughs> since then. But we're, so, okay, so so thanks for coming on. So we're mainly going to be talking yeah. about your podcast, uh, Know Your Enemy, which you co-host uh, with Sam Adler Bell. That's that's correct, that's right? right? Yes. Um, and I, uh, I think I, I I got into it a little later than maybe other people, but towards the the end of uh, the, you know, Trump administration. I was I was <laughs> listening to it. Well, I mean, I think the podcast launched in 2019. Is that right? Yes. So I'm more like towards the end of, you know, before the election. I, I got into listening to some of your back catalog and thought it was really interesting. And um, and then a lot of you know the the period between the election and uh, the inauguration also had lots of strange things happening and you guys yeah. did, a, did a great episode immediately after the Capitol riot insurrection, whatever we want to call it on January 6th. Um, and okay. So I, so I would like the log line for the show I would give is, uh, leftists looking at the conservative movement and analyzing it. Uh, is that, is that accurate? Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good summary. Um, uh, we, I mean, you know, you say you got into it recently, but really when we started it, I don't know. I think it takes a while for podcasts sometimes to find their voice or find their footing or figure out what they really want to do. And even though we, when Sam and I started the podcast, you know, we were just two good friends who would all often talk about the things we talk about on the podcast. So we thought, well, maybe we should, you know, take the plunge and become two more white men in New York City who have a <laughs> podcast. Um uh, but, you know, as the – not just as the Trump uh, administration kind of continued on, but as the conservative intellectuals kind of caught up to it, uh, that really – I think some of those episodes where we talked about the illiberal right, things like Catholic integralists, 
um, you know, the emergence of Josh Hawley types who are kind of, you know, um, uh, trying to present themselves as friend of the working class. You know, there was a lot of interesting things happening on the right. Trump, yes, but also among the conservative intellectuals. And so I think, you know, we've done more stuff about Trump and things related to him on the intellectual right than we anticipated going into it because we thought it'd be maybe more history and background and kind of, you know, looking at National Review and Bill Buckley and some of the conservative intellectuals. So it's, you know, um, it's a continued to evolve and change. But I think, you know, more recently, we've we've sort of found our footing. So you started listening at the time. <laughs> so I did, I did go back and listen to some of the early episodes. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, so you're starting off with like talking like about like Evan Burke and yeah. other things like deep in the, you know, uh, history of conservative thought. And, um, uh -huh. and then you, uh, are sort of, and then you start bringing on guests and, um, is there, I mean, is there like an entry episode that you would recommend if someone, is their curiosity is peaked, um, right now, uh, where would you, would you recommend they start at episode one? I think it's about, been about 30 or so. Yeah. Public just, episodes. Uh, yeah. We've done 30, uh, free in front of the paywall episodes. We also have a Patreon and we've, we've been doing more bonus episodes too, that are pretty substantial, um, but, you know, for an entry point for people, I mean, I don't know. It really depends what their interests are. Um, I would say one of our most listened to episodes was one we did um, right around the new year on the fascism question. You know, is Trump a fascist or should we apply that label to him? And, and we did a lot of work on that one. And it was one of the episodes we've gotten the most kind of positive feedback on, even from people who sort of disagreed with where we landed. Um, but, you know, some of our interviews – We've had, you know, Sam Moyne, Jamel Bowie, um, uh, Nicole Hemmer, her episode on Rush Limbaugh we did recently after it because she studies conservative media. Yes. That's one a lot of people like. So you can kind of – I would just say if people are looking for an entry point to pick one that just strikes strikes them as interesting based on the guest or the topic or whatever. Yeah. OK. So you don't need to start necessarily start at the beginning even though there is some no. sort of chronological or prefatory part. Yeah. I, I think like, like all podcasts, you sort of – you know, there's the know your enemy extended cinematic universe of people, you know, that um, especially me as an ex-conservative, maybe we can talk about that some oh, more. Yeah, but, for sure. but like, you know, that background, it means certain people I used to know are now in the news or, you know, caught up in the Trump stuff somehow. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, different people we come back to again and again. So if you don't know who Adrian Vermeule is say, for example, you know, you might have to look that up if you don't start early on, but, uh, <laughs> right. Uh, and yeah, yeah. just as a, as a side note, I realized after, did I, I can't remember if I, if I caught the integralist episode, but at least you guys talk about those types when you're talking in the episode about the West Coast Straussians, but I realized yeah. I'm, I'm blocked by at least two of these types on Twitter. I'm not uh, surprised. Amari. They're, they're, really, they're really snowflakes. Yeah. Amari yeah. and Vermeule both, both, uh, blocked yeah. me. And, uh, so did, um, oh, uh, what's his name? The guy who wrote the Bonhoeffer uh, biography. Oh, Eric Metaxas. Yeah. yeah, Eric Metaxas. So actually, I share, uh, strangely, he was a member of the same um, uh, uh, humor magazine in college that I was the editor of. Oh, one right. He was, he wrote for it like 20 years previous. So I, I just like sort of knew, knew that he was, you know, a writer and then, <laughs> and then he sort of went in this other strange direction. But anyway, we're getting into yeah. Medusha. Yeah, I think, so I think the, the first episode I listened to was the one uh, with David Cleon, who used to work for Blogging Heads as well. And he was mm -hmm. talking about Norman Bonhoritz's memoir making it and that was an interesting one um and <laughs> yeah because uh, yeah, that was okay so and the, the occasion for that was it was like 
reissued on its 50th anniversary or, or something along those lines by yeah. New York Review Books or something? Yeah, it had been recently reissued. And so in the past, it wasn't, uh, you know, right around the time of the episode. Uh, it wasn't timed to that exactly. But it, in the past year or maybe two years previously, it happened. So there was a whole kind of spat of essays and articles looking back at the book Um you know, it's uh, I remember there was a New York Times profile of Norman Podoritz and his kind of how Trumpy he was or was not. And so it was like something that was getting some attention. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, David was great on that episode, but it's kind of like an example of one way we do an episode, meaning we pick one figure and do a deep dive, um, you know, uh, as opposed to a certain issue or topic or, you know, a, a kind of collection, a, a, a kind of movement or a subset of the conservative movement, say, you know, uh, uh, Straussians or <laughs> um, neoconservatives or paleocons or um, Russell Kirk admirers, whatever label you want to do. You know, sometimes it's individuals, sometimes it's, you know, movements, sometimes it's, you know, other topics altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, just as a, as a side note, what, so one of the things you talk about sometimes with neoconservatives is how there's all these I don't know if you would call it inbred. There's all these family connections between the right. conservatives. They often marry each other. It's multi-generational things. Like uh-huh. Pat Horitz's son is John Pat Horitz, uh, who many uh-huh. people may know. And I, just as, as a weird person, though, I found out just a couple years ago that I am distantly related through marriage to um, Midge Dector, um, who is... Norman Pat Horitz's wife. Norman Pat Horitz's wife. Yeah. So one of my, my mom's first cousins, who is no longer alive, was married to Dector's nephew um so that, that is pretty big but when i found that out, i was like oh yeah like that's where and so yeah i don't know if it, like you know if every yeah. everyone who has some sort of new york jewish connection in the 1930s yeah. is related or something but yeah. um but that I've, I've not been able to successfully use this to advance my career like many other uh you know neoconservative yeah. second and third generation people yeah. have it's, uh sadly um, yeah when i when i moved to dc um uh for grad school i mean you know 15 years ago it was uh, one of the jokes I was told. I won't say who told me, but um, when when Nor- uh, when um, John Podorts moved to D.C., I forget what he, I think he was working in the Reagan administration in some capacity. Um, the joke was that everyone thought his name was John P. Normanson because <laughs> I'm John Podorts Norman's son <laughs> was the uh, the line that was used. But it's it's really you know um, it's a testament how small the conservative movement is. That's one of the things Sam and I emphasize on the show is that it, you know, it's actually a pretty tight knit group in some ways, or uh, it's a kind of recognizable movement still. Um, And you're kind of, as I can say this as an ex-conservative, you're kind of inculcated into it. And, you know, you might go to certain seminars or conferences or, you know, work with certain organizations. And so it really has a cohesive feel. I can say this as someone, you know, again, who was very deep into the conservative movement in college and then early in grad school, it has a cohesiveness. It feels like, you yeah. know, people in the movement in a way that now someone on the left, I don't, I mean, you know, obviously there are social networks and people know each other and, but there's something about the, the kind of cohesiveness, whatever their internal fissures and arguments, there is something again, kind of small about the conservative movement, meaning it's not surprising that lots of people are married to each other or know each other. Or, I mean, I discover something new, all the time where someone's married to someone or, yeah. you know, there's some family connection and it's, 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 it's interesting. Yeah. And I mean, you, you joked about like the know your enemy cinematic universe, but it is, there is some <laughs> parallel there where it's like, 
someone who you discussed in a previous episode is like a glancing character in <laughs> yes. some other yeah. person's story, <laughs> and it is it all sort of like uh, comes together. And then what would I guess if we're using the Avengers universe? Uh, thing maybe sort of the uh, you know there's a, what is the uh, is there a sort of an end game <laughs> denouement uh, a big battle against Thanos uh, who yeah. would maybe be Obama I don't know exactly but anyway we'll we can move away from that okay so um, why don't we, so you mentioned a couple of times why don't we just talk about your history and that you were once a card carrying member or something of the conservative movement and grew up uh, as a as a conservative and then and then moved um, uh, far from that so how did it, can you just briefly yeah. outline how that happened. Yeah, no, uh, the story I like to tell is um, when I first started graduate school at Georgetown, I took a history seminar with Michael Kazin, the former co-editor of Descent, someone who became a teacher and mentor to me and published me once I moved to lab. But uh, he taught a seminar on American conservatism. And this was circa like 2005. Um, so, so what, and what you, you were know, studying history? At, at I was studying political theory in the government department. But because Michael taught like political history, I could – Moonlight in the history department for a few seminars. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he was teaching a, a graduate seminar on post-war U.S. conservatism, mostly because, as he put it, he was tired of losing to the right. So it's just kind of like, you know, how can we understand something they're doing that's working? Um, but he said, you know, I'm teaching this class as a card-carrying member of the left. And, you know, you do the first day introduction to where you go around the graduate seminar. I'm so-and-so. These are my research interests. And I threw in that I was a card-carrying member of the right. <laughs> so as of 22, 23 years old, I, I would say that in a graduate seminar. But I'd grown up very conservative in a, a, a well, a self-described fundamentalist Christian home, uh, kind of Bible. The term Bible-thumping, you know, is <laughs> would be appropriate. Mm -hmm. And the term fundamentalist was one they embraced. It's not my pejorative. Um, I went to a conservative Christian college as an undergraduate and, um, you know, I, there are a lot of reasons I moved left over the years. It really, I would say kind of started in my mid twenties and, you know, um, um, there was an, uh, wasn't, you know, necessarily consistent or incremental. It, you know, it just in the decade that followed kind of my mid to late twenties through my early to mid thirties, um, you know, the disaster of the Bush years, it impressed itself upon me. Mm -hmm. Things like defending torture. They're the kind of things that kind of shake you up in a way and shake you out of kind of ideological complacency. You know, when you see people defending things that are clearly either in the case of torture, like grotesquely immoral, or in the case of the Iraq war, just an absolute disaster, followed by the financial crash in, you know, 2007, 2008. Like those are the those are the kinds of events that can shake a person, especially if you're in your 20s, kind of out of the convictions that you were raised with. Um, and uh, to maybe tie the story together, really one of the first pieces I wrote about this was in, uh, I think it was published the summer of 2016, uh, when Michael Kazin, I mentioned my old teacher, he was editing Dissent at the time. Uh, he said, Matt, I noticed on Twitter you're really into Bernie Sanders. Uh, he said, that's not how you were when, when I met you. Could you write an essay about kind of what happened? So uh, if anyone wants more details about some of how my thinking changed, that essay is called Leaving Conservatism Behind, and it was published summer 2016 in Descent. Okay, and we'll track down the yeah. link, and it'll be below sure. uh, the video on the blogging site. Um, so, okay, so, you know, people often, you know, are raised in one sort of political belief and then move to a different one, and, you know, there's also... a Going back to the neocons, there's famously like they they began as sort of 
you know, uh, far on the left are Trotskyites, you can correct me if I have any of this wrong, who, you know, eventually moved to the right. Um, but how did you end up uh, where, you know, where you are today as, as a leftist instead of a liberal or a centrist or yeah. someone who just was sick of politics altogether? How did, how did you move? <laughs> yeah, well, the, the neocon example is an interesting one because um, one of the lines that people might use to describe what you just um, articulated would be something like, see, they never stopped being radicals, right? They were, you know, Trotsky's on the left and then, you know, th that same movement thought they could, you know, Iraq, the Iraq war would be, a, you know, the, the first domino that fell in revolutionizing the Middle East. Like there was something radical um, that stayed there. And sometimes people, friends of mine have said, Matt, you, you've never just been like, a moderate, <laughs> um, you were either like a dedicated true conservative or now you're, you know, you would call yourself a socialist and you're on the left and, you know, you're not just a, you know, a kind of middle of the road Democrat or something. Uh, so maybe it has something to do with my temperament. I, okay. That's um, very interesting. Uh, which I concede, you know, um, that it's not all pure, you know, reason or, uh, simply intellectual ideas I've been persuaded by. There's some, probably something psychological and temperamental at work too. But I would also say, um, I mentioned the kind of times through which we've lived, you know, were, were part of kind of shaking up my thinking and, and being a part of my move left. I mean, it's not that, I feel like I'm also um, representative of, say, the millennial, uh, I'm an old millennial, but, you know, people who have lived through certain, yeah, people have lived through certain experiences. If they've included, say, the financial crash and you see all your friends, maybe you yourself, you know, leave college with massive or grad school with massive amounts of debt. And you look at the, you know, the economy and what your prospects are. I don't think it's, you know, that shocking that someone would have, you know, if those are your formative experiences to have, you know, to be drawn towards political ideas that you know, you might call social democratic or democratic socialism or something that names an alternative to the status quo mm -hmm. beyond kind of mere reform or, um, you know, kind of nibbling at the edges of problems. Mm -hmm. You know, the way you were describing uh, your journey uh, reminded me a bit strangely <laughs> of this, the last episode I did, which was with uh, Kathy, Kathy Reisenwitz. Uh, about OnlyFans, and um, and there was a, a profile of people who are on OnlyFans, and, you know, of the, like, eight or so people profiled in this article, like, six of them said they grew up in very religious households, and then she mentioned in, when I was talking to her, that she also grew up in a very conservative religious household, and I asked, like, is there a link here, and she said, you know, there's a type of person where in your childhood, uh, sex is a big damn deal, I think was the phrase she used. And then when you're an adult, it remains a big damn deal. But but you might be, like, on the other side of it. And then and then she had to realize in her life that there are a lot of people out there for whom sex is not a big damn deal. Um, and so she was somewhat unusual in that. But just, you know, the focus on sexuality in her childhood, you know, where she actually she has an OnlyFans account of herself mm -hmm. now. And, you know, it was like a reports on, um, the you know, sex work uh, from a libertarianish perspective. But anyway... I think there is sort of, you know, there was this whole, especially online debate about like horseshoe theory. Um, but I, 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 and a lot of people on the left got, got mad at that because it was sort of implying that, you know, the, the like super Bernie fan is like a hop, skip and a jump away from the alt right. But I think there is yeah. an a certain personality type that's attracted 
to extreme extreme ideas or extreme movements or very energetic movements or something. And then there's another type that just wants stability and doesn't really care about all, all these exciting ideas and so uh-huh. forth. And um, and so you you can see people sort of hopping between them. And uh, yeah, so so I've mentioned this on the show before, but back in 2016, the alt right was first starting to emerge online. And I caught some shit from some of these individual guys uh, because of something uh, Michael Vernon Doherty retweeted of mine. And then I ended up um, uh, actually having some direct message conversations with some of these people. And one of them, his he's long gone from Twitter. I have no idea what happened to him. Uh, his handle was uh, hipster fascist. And uh, we got we got to chatting, and he said that he had once been a socialist, and he was uh, he was going to art school. And then he couldn't pay for it anymore and had to drop out. And I was joking with him, well, you know, an art student socialist <laughs> who becomes a fascist, you know, we've heard this story at least once before. Yeah. And he was like, oh, yeah, that is pretty funny. Um, and but yeah, so he had he had done sort of the far left to far right thing at, at some point, And um, but then, uh, you know, at some point, uh, Twitter banned uh, all the alt right people. Uh, and, uh-huh. and and uh, I don't know what ended up happening to him. I wouldn't be surprised if he ended up, you know, going back to socialism or something. Anyway, there just seems to be something that is in a, a certain personality type that is drawn to more more extreme ideas than... Yeah. Now, than, than now I mean, I wouldn't say I was, you know, I'm, I hold extreme beliefs necessarily. Maybe in some cases. I mean, the cert, certain moral principles like, um, you know, uh, like I mentioned torture earlier or, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm very much like the death penalty is an issue that I had extremely strong feelings on. And I, so in those cases, maybe they can be called extreme because I don't admit of exceptions to them <laughs> or whatever. But um, I mean, I can say my move from right to left meant that politically the values I, you know, really hold dear changed significantly. Like the way I consider moral dessert, right? Like on the right, you know, I'd really bought into the sense that, you know, you sink or swim, you know, poverty, you know, certain narratives about poverty, um, you know, who is poor, why they're poor, you know, the undeserving versus the deserving poor, you know, bootstrap work, your, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work ethic, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that was something that informed my politics when I was on the right. And now I have a totally different view of, you know, what human beings deserve, regardless of how they found themselves in certain straits or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's not, just like an extreme personality type that switched. Um, and also, I would just have to say, um, I'm someone who, like, even when I was on the right, I think I was a relatively sensible conservative, I hope. <laughs> uh, and now that I'm on the left, you know, I mentioned I'm, I'm on dissent's editorial board. I write often for them. You know, there are people, you know, communists who consider dissent squishy. And me, uh, you know, milk toast. Um, you know, electoralist, <laughs> right. uh, whatever terms you want to use, you know, that that's possible. So I, I don't want people to think I was like a far right, um, proto, proto, uh, alt right kind of person when I was a young conservative. Mm-hmm. It's not quite exactly. And even now, again, I'm, it's, it's complicated. Right. Okay. So yeah, okay, so you're, it wasn't, yeah. So your values have shifted in fundamental <laughs> ways. Um, and if that makes sense, I mean, you know, being a, things are changing in America, being, you know, uh, 10 years ago, we would have said being a socialist puts you on the extreme end of American politics. 
uh, somewhat less so over the past, you know, five to ten years. Um, okay, so let's 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 talk more about the show. Um, sure. And and so one of the things I, I think I like about the show is you do so it's about the conservative movement and conservative intellectuals and conservative ideas, and you take these ideas seriously. Um, you are not, you know, you're not just like look at this bullshit like these people are morons. Yeah. Um, and so I appreciate that. Uh, at the same time, you the the podcast was launched during the Trump era, and and the Trump era is sort of like the end. I don't know. I mean, whether or not it's the end of the conservative movement, but ideas are less, much less important to the MAGA part of you know conservatism now sure. than we would have said ideas worked in the Bush administration. And I and I would say that Trump, him like Trump has no actual ideas himself. Like his idea <laughs> is just that he is Trump and he is the best, and whatever he says at any given moment is good and true, but then, you know, five minutes later, he could be saying the reverse and that also would right. be good and true. So I, I, that's, that's my view. Um, so one, would you, <laughs> is Trumpism absent of ideas? And is, is there some conflict between doing a podcast about conservative intellectuals when we just went through a period in which intellectualism on the right really didn't seem to matter at all? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I'm not sure I've been asked that in the context of the podcast yet, but it's, I would say a couple things in response. One is, um, I mentioned a lot of the show is historical. Um, so, you know, what it kind of, whatever is happening in the present, there are episodes we would do just because we find the history involved interesting, right? Again, I mentioned national review. We just did a big bonus episode on, um, the four generations of L Brent Bozell's, um, one of whom, Brent Bozell Jr. married Bill Buckley's sister, uh, Trish, Patricia Buckley, and so was very involved in the founding of National Review, eventually became like a radical, like pro-Franco. Um, his family lived in Franco of Spain, became like a proto-Catholic integralist, if that term means anything to your listeners or viewers, I should say. Um, you know, so those the, the history there is, you know, interesting to us regardless Mm -hmm. and just, I, to, just to play that out, because I didn't listen to that, but I did read here wrote a piece on the yeah. similar idea. So then the the third L. Brett Bozell founded this thing, Media Research Council Center or right. something, yeah. which was sort of like critiquing, you know, main, like bias in the mainstream press, that kind yeah. of thing. And then the fourth L. Brett Bozell was uh, at the Capitol siege and uh, was he arrested? Was arrested. Yeah. So, so, so this is sort of like the rise and fall of the conservative empire told over four generations, all named the same, right. all named L. Brent Bozell. Um, yes. Which yeah. is, you know, you couldn't make this shit up. Um, yeah. Yeah. But even, um, even if the, I think, I mean, I think your description of Trump and his politics being bereft of ideas is correct. Um, there are two kind of things to, I would say to know about that. We don't just describe conservative ideas necessarily. I mean, obviously you can't talk about politics without talking about ideas, but you know, you can see and say, um, when you read, uh, Bill Buckley's editorial in national review defending, um, segregation and the Jim Crow South. And he explicitly says that, um, the, the white, white people in the South should prevail politically, even if they don't prevail numerically, <laughs> And you see then the kind of anti-democratic strain of the conservative, the Republican Party and conservative movement, you know, especially during the Trump era. It's, you know, it seems like the, the voter suppression laws we've seen in Georgia and other places just recently, you know, like that's kind of come back in in a very explicit way. I don't know if it ever went away, 
but it's it's kind of there present and and you know very visible right now. So you can see if you look at conservative history, there is a genealogy there, right? So even if the current ideas aren't bereft, or the current right and or Trump himself and his administration were, you know, not the most intellectual, not operating from a coherent set of uh, ideological principles or anything, you can still see certain phenomenon today. There are deep roots. Uh, they have deep roots in conservative history. Mm -hmm. But I would also say, to me, one of the most interesting elements is be of the, the, the administration we just managed to survive was that um, because Trump himself did not have a coherent intellectual framework or ideology, conservative intellectuals tried to find one. <laughs> right. You know, so there's now magazines and journals like American Affairs kind of dedicated to like, what would a more intellectual, rigorous Trumpism kind of be like? Yes. They might, you know, given how Trump flamed out, they might not identify it so explicitly with Trump. But it was that's how it started. And I would say, furthermore, um, you can you can see that right wing intellectuals have this curious relationship to Trump. So, like one of the things I harped on was during the pandemic. You know, it's not like they all parroted everything Trump said about the pandemic, about the coronavirus, and so on. But they would, you know, kind of at a one degree of remove from Trump, sort of help sow skepticism, right? They might be anti-mask. They might be, they might say that, oh, these lockdowns are because modern man is secular and doesn't believe in God. So death is the worst thing possible. So you know, <laughs> staving off death at all costs, even if it means shutting down the whole country, you know, and uh, permanent lockdown. Yeah. So Not, the, you know, is this so, a RR Reno, Reno yeah. piece you're referencing? I mean, it's yeah. one of many, but yeah. yeah, Reno was one I've especially harped on. He's the editor of First Things, the uh, so-called, um, what's their tagline? The, the, <laughs> basically the most important the common right. the common wheel of the right is how I think of it as someone existing outside of the yeah, Catholic yeah. media ecosystem. Um, right. Yeah, and he had this yeah. bizarre flame out. You know, lots of people, yeah, you know, perform very badly uh, yeah. in the, in the sort of intellectual I mean, movement. It's not like they all just, you know, it, the relationship between I, the ideas people and Trump was complicated. But even if they weren't, you know, giving an intellectual gloss to everything he said directly, there was this way in which they were kind of triangulating, right? So there'd be Trump saying this. And there'd be the lib media and, you know, uh, um, uh, the, the keyboard brigades working from home, white collar who didn't care about staying home during the pandemic. You know, like that, that there'd be the, the mainstream liberal position on one side and then Trump and then the right wing intellectuals would have to sort of, you know, figure it, figure, figure out some sort of figure out some way to kind of give what Trump was doing, maybe some gloss of plausibility while also taking aim at the experts and elites who were trying to, you know, control our lives. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's, so that's been interesting to track. That's one of the main things we've done is not to try to find Trump's inner intellectual essence. Well, which doesn't, what, that would be a fruitless search. does not exist. Yeah. Right. But to track how the intellectuals who are ended up supporting him, you know, uh, backing him for president, even if there's like a one degree of separation there, or they're not, you know, it was a reluctant uh, decision to back him for president or whatever. There's still this complicated dance they're doing and that Sam and I have tried to track that on the show. OK. OK, so there's two questions I have prepared that could b both flow from this. So one is, can there be Trumpism without Trump, which you alluded to? And and the other one would be looking who, you know, uh, scorecard sort of thing after action report of the conservative movement after Trump. 
who should get a um, feather in their cap, and who should get a black mark. Um, and so we could go with either one of those. Um, let's, 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 I guess let's do Trumpism. Can, do you think there could be a Trumpism without Trump, or does that not make any sense? No, I mean, it's, a, it's complicated, but I would just say um, kind of two things. Uh, one, I do think there's some part of me that wants to say, no, there can't be Trumpism without Trump. Because to me, the whole thing somehow held together because of his showmanship, the bizarre, the bizarre things he could kind of get away with in a sense that I think normal politicians wouldn't say or wouldn't try to get away with. Right. And, and he, it kind of all reached this absurd pitch that I think forced people to either love him <laughs> or, you know, be repelled by him. And so I think he generated a kind of enthusiasm and people identified with him in a way they hadn't you know, among Republicans with a politician, I think for a long time. And uh, so I'm not sure whatever, whatever Trump's secret sauce was. I mean, it was amazing that he turned out 10 million more people than he did in 2016. Yeah. Right. So like there were real, he was really driving people on the right in some way or winning people over. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I want to say, um, I did a couple episodes before the election saying that Biden was going to win, win in a walk. I did one with um, uh, uh, Bob Wright, proprietor of, of Blogging Heads, because he was very pessimistic about Biden and worries about everything in general. And I was trying to say, no, Biden's going to win. Like, Biden's going to win. And but, so, so I was right about that. But what I did get wrong was I didn't think Trump was going to pick up any new support. I was like, he's basically, unless you were with him from uh, 2016, I don't see how you could pot, who possibly exactly. was like jumping on the Trump train, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. in the past couple of years. So I was wrong about that. Like, yeah, 10, yeah. you got 10 million more people. Yeah. Um, I mean, we lived through, who lives through the pandemic? Right. And, and comes time to vote, they say, board, yes, I, I want know, so I truly don't understand that, but yeah. it, that's something uh -huh. I, you know, I, I want more of this. Yeah. So that's yeah. very, very strange. But then th thankfully, you know, Biden got 14 million more than Hillary Clinton <laughs> did or whatever. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I would say no Trumpism without Trump. He is a unique historical figure and, and Don Jr. can't do it. Uh, sorry, Josh Hawley, you can't do it either. And certainly yeah. not Cruz or any of these other jokers. Um, Something about his, yeah, uh, his charisma, his showmanship, his brand, his just mm -hmm. postmodern status as someone who <laughs> watched Fox News and believed it versus yeah. the normal people who, like, appear on Fox News and, and lie, know they're lying to the viewers. They're like, this is not going to be replicated. And, and just his, the fact, existing outside the political system uh, you know, celebrity. Yes. This is, there's no one else in the country who who has this. Yeah. Um, so, and, I, and, and and not just a celebrity, but someone who did a ra reality TV show as this like genius businessman. Exactly. Boss. Yeah. I think you know. I don't know how you could prove this or what point is. My guess is that The Apprentice, like for for a lot of the country, Trump was the Trump of The Apprentice. Oh, for sure. I agree with that. Yeah. yeah Without, I mean, the Apprentice is I, the key. To yeah. Trump becoming president, if that show, if the guy, Mark was his name, the guy who created Survivor and also The Apprentice, if that guy yeah. was never born, then Trump would not be president. I'm 100% sure yeah. of that. Because yeah. most people, if you, if you grew up like I did in the New York City area, knew who Trump was like in the 80s and 90s, and then he became this figure where he would appear on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air in a cameo, or, or sorry, the Drew Carey <laughs> right. show, if they, if the, if yeah. the gang went from Cleveland to New York City, they would encounter Trump. But he really was washed up, you know, circa, like yeah. 2002 and um <laughs> without, was without, without, without the show the show created yeah. the, the image and, and he became the image um in this crazy way um that it's postmodern it doesn't make any sense to me but um 
Yeah, so I, I agree with that. So yeah, okay, so if Trump... So Trump, I don't think he's going to run again. Um, I think he is much happier living in a country club in Florida than having to take all these meetings and uh, try to, like, take in this information he doesn't understand or care about. He likes the attention, but, but that's it. So I don't think... He, I, he has no successor. You know, if Mike Pence runs, he's not going to be Trump 2.0. It's going to be something... It's going to be more like George W. Bush or something. So yeah. I think there's no Trumpism without Trump. And it can't be, like... I, it's not going to be Tucker Carlson. It's not going to be Steve Bannon. They're just... There's no one else who has this... Yeah. insane, like, spark of whatever that's inside him that's yeah. where his, like, soul would be <laughs> that can command, you know, tens of millions of Americans to believe whatever he says at any moment. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's, uh, okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about who who should we give a gold star to in the conservative movement, and who should we say tut-tut um, after the end of Trump's term? Um, what, who, so who is, I guess, who, do you think it's as anyone from the... So, does the never-Trump conservatives would be the obvious people. Um, do, do you think they deserve plaudits from us for resisting Trump, whereas people like Rusty Reno, um, you know, swallowed Trumpism whole hog and tried to justify it in crazy ways? Or yeah. do they not deserve any plaudits either? I mean, that's a tough question to answer because I'm torn about it. I mean, there's a part of me that has the, you know the online lefty on Twitter who wants to be really snarky about everything, but um, I'm not actually. And I think like a decision to actually not back Trump is something that deserves moral credit. It's like the lowest barrier, right? It should be so obvious. But um, the reason I'm kind of hesitant though to still give them much credit is I know some of them have like, um, so Stuart Stevens wrote a book uh, that, that kind of was of mea culpa, you know, that kind of looked at the Republican Party politics. This, this guy past. was the, was he, he was in the Bush administration. He was one of the press secretaries or something. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, he was a, he's a campaign guy. Oh no, he's, um, he's one of the Stuart McCain Stevens. guys. Okay. Yeah. One of the McCain guys. Uh, who, yeah. Just a campaign guy in general on the yeah. right. Um, you know, so a few of them have kind of acknowledged that Trump didn't come from nowhere, that he was riding energies, you know, that the Republican Party had tried to ride for, decades, really, you know, kind of racial backlash, you know, kind of code words, the old Lee Atwater story, right? Um, you don't have to say the N-word if you just talk about welfare queens and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, those kinds of uh, things enough. Um, so I, the reason I'm hesitant to give them more credit is I do think a lot of them had a very nefarious influence on American politics for decades and decades. And now, you know, they do the minimal thing and try to and, and say, well, we're against Trump. I'm not sure how I'm supposed to evaluate that in a broader sense. I'm glad for anyone who decided not to vote for Trump, because I think the, the, the things he did to our country, especially the mishandling of the pandemic, to just take the most obvious example, it's, it's, I think it's plausible to say hundreds of thousands of Americans are dead because of his incompetence and the, the kind of just outright failures of his administration, right? So anyone who votes against that deserves something, uh, but I'm not sure how much more credit I give a lot of the never Trump people otherwise, just because not many of them, I think, have done a full accounting of how we got to Trump mm-hmm. and how, you know, I mean, this is one of the themes of my podcast, too, is that there's real continuity between elements of conservative politics in the Republican Party and Trump. He's not a total break with what we saw before. And so the people who for years helped elect Republicans and who, you know, um, who's the... Um, the bald, never Trump guy, um, Rick, um, 
Yeah, I can never keep all those uh, guys straight. The, yeah. the, he's one of the Lincoln Project. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is a guy who, you know, along with, well, maybe I shouldn't use the, uh, some of these people who are involved in Republican campaigns. Maybe you can cut that. I'm not, <laughs> I, I don't want to name names, but, you know, people who are involved in Republican campaigns, campaigns for years and did things like, put gay marriage on the ballot in Ohio in 2004, right? Like running, that is running on bigotry. That's what they were trying to use people's fear of gay people to get George W. Bush reelected. Now for this person to act like Trump came from nowhere and doesn't, isn't, you know, really represent the Republican party. Well, you know, he's a, he's different in some ways, but there are other continuities. And so these people who, you know, again, worked in Republican politics for years and, and fed some of the baser instincts and impulses on the right, just voting against Trump, I'm not sure how much credit to give them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you made me think of a metaphor uh, that I probably didn't, this is too clever for me to come up with, but I remember at least I was pushing it in 2016, was that, you know, the, uh, Trump was what is like an opportunistic infection that took over the GOP, which was which had cancer but didn't know it. Um, <laughs> so, like, only a weakened body could have been taken over by Trump, uh, the, you know, parasite or the infection, and but if the body hadn't been weakened, then they would have been able to successfully reject yeah. the infection. Yeah. And I for think that five yeah. years later, for, I think that's safe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, for example, the people instrumental in uh, John McCain choosing Sarah Palin as his running mate. I mean, Palin, to me, is probably one of the most obvious, like, forerunners of yeah. Trump, um, given the kind of connection with her and that, like, the, the emerging Tea Party, plus her own, like, ignorance and and. Yet com ignorance combined with a certain telegenic show. And the reality, or, or the reality TV angle. She's yeah, been on reality. reality TV shows since falling yeah. out of you know yeah. public. So, so the people office, responsible yeah. for her being on a national ticket, you know, telling me that Trump came from nowhere or he's you know, you know a, 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 some kind of break with the old Republican Party. Come on, it's not serious. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so a lot of the Never Trump people who stuck with it um, were or are neoconservatives. And so one theory, and this is, I think this is the theory that Bob Wright has and he's written about, is that, you know, they saw, they left Trump because they didn't think Trump would implement their preferred foreign policy. And so they're glomming on to the Democrats now, hoping that, you know, the neoconservative foreign policy can continue now that, you know, um, Bill Kristol and Jennifer Rubin and Max Boot are like telling people to vote for Democrats. So that's 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 like the cynical um, point of view. Does that does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, we did an episode with Sam Moyne, um, uh, that's who some of your viewers might know. He's a Yale professor and uh, has written very critically of the Never Trumpers. And this is part of the argument he makes. You know, is it really this is they they're now kind of going back to their roots in the Democratic Party because you have I many neoconservatives. Uh, some of them, you know, a prior generation would have called themselves Scoop Jackson Democrats. Right. So the the neoconservative movement has has as much to do with the changing nature of the Democratic Party as it did them moving right in some ways, especially on foreign policy. But I mean, I think what you just suggested, Bob Wright's argument, I think that's probably true of some of them to a degree. But I think there's more at work too. I cut you off. Give me yeah. The other, uh, okay. Well, actually, I so I disagree with Bob on this, and I have a more a less cynical. Usually, I the most cynical explanation makes sense to me. Uh, less cynically, I actually do think. I mean, what separates the neoconservatives from other, in my view, other members of the conservative movement intellectual sphere is like they really do believe stuff, and uh, and also a number of them are Jews, 
and um, like a lot of the people who defected against Trump were, were Jewish conservative intellectuals, and like you can't help but think it was because they saw an echo of Hitler's rise in the rise of Trump, and they did not, and they, so they were they saw the danger of Trump, whereas a lot of conservative intellectuals just saw like the potential promise of Trump and thinking, oh, we can we can rein this guy in and we can get something out of this. Um, you know, he'll get, he'll rile up the crowds, but we'll get our preferred policy implemented. And so I think it, so I would give a feather in the cap to people, uh, like Crystal, um, and so forth who, you know, had, you know, the, the, the legacy of the Nazi party and the Holocaust, you know, still weigh on them and they, uh, you know, saw the potential threat of Trump. Obviously, Trump is not Hitler. He did not institute uh, anything close to, you know, fascism, although this is obviously something you you mentioned, you, you talked about on the show. Uh-huh. I, it might, you, he was far too, I mean, fascists believe in something. Trump doesn't believe in anything, as I said, and he's also super incompetent, so it's yeah. hard to, you know, institute a fascist state if, if you're just a total bumbling fool. Um, so so there's that. But yeah, I think I think they're, they're, it's not purely cynical for a lot of them. I mean, Jennifer Rubin, I don't know. She seems like a totally cynical character. And she just totally like flipped on a dime from being the most pro Romney, anti Obama, you know, blogger yeah, yeah. out there to just being like rah rah, you know, Nancy Pelosi or whatever. But I, I do think some of the more intelligent, thoughtful types, you know, really like did see the danger of Trump and tried to, and tried to fight against it within the party and then turned against, yeah. turned against the party and are basically out of, you know, essentially part of the Democratic coalition now. Yeah. Although it's, you know, how many, you know, the neoconservatives are not a voting bloc. Like, you know, how many, it's such an elite concern, the things they care about. Yeah. Um, so it's not like they really have people they bring along with them in the, in the populace. Sure. It's, it's, it's how they sway. It's like how they, yeah. you know, formulate ideas and, and, and so forth. Yeah. No, I think there's something to that. I mean, that was part of the ambivalence in my first answer, you know, why I said, you know, I want to give them this much credit. You know, uh, Bill Crystal's father, Irving Crystal, he wrote it was either a book or an essay called Two Chairs for Capitalism," and uh, I might say one chair for Bill Crystal. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's not nothing, but I do think I actually think you're right about the importance of being Jewish. Uh, the fact that many neoconservative intellectuals are, because uh, you know there was this great conversation you can watch on YouTube between Martin Amos and Christopher Hitchens on Saul Bellow. Uh, Judaism and anti-Semitism, hmm. or Israel and anti-Semitism. So it takes up the question of anti-Semitism. I forget who Hitchens was quoting, but he said Jewish people were a seismic people, meaning you know the canary in the coal mine. You see something like Trump, and you know it's not good um, for reasons of historical experience uh, and just you know when, when you're a, a minority, religious, ethnic, or otherwise. I think certain things seem even more menacing to you than they might to other people for good reason. Um, yeah. And so I, I do think, you know, with that combined with the fact that neoconservatives had always argued for a, if I, if I can give them some credit, that America was a universal nation in the sense of, I mean, it led them astray, right? Thinking American political institutions could maybe be, you know, transplanted to the Middle East too easily. That, you know, that's kind of the bad side of universalism. But they did in comparison to paleoconservative intellectuals, people like Pat Buchanan, for example, no, no friend of the Jews, him, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> You know, they wanted they wanted to portray American ideals as universal ones, that America was based on certain intellectual principles and ideas that, in theory, anyone of any race, religion or creed could 
embrace, right? Yeah. And and that that is a less. Uh, you know, again, I mentioned the problems with it already. There are others we could discuss, but that is a less odious political vision than the alt right, Trump, and uh, and you know other strains of conservatism. Mm-hmm. It's true. So I, I I think you know I'm I'm kind of. I'm happy to meet you halfway and say, <laughs> say like, I don't t- entirely disagree with um, your alternative explanation. I, I would imagine in some cases a little bit of both are at work. And I think, you know, uh, but with some of them, I think you're probably right that it was a genuine propulsion at someone they knew was not going to be a friend to people like them. Yeah. And, and honestly, um, the people as – uh, you know, as a Jewish American, um, the, the people who disgust me the most are the like Jews who like got into bed with Trump because they thought it'd be good for Israel or yeah. whatever whatever other general concern. Um, and I actually percolating percolating in the back of my mind is 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 writing or or doing a podcast episode, although it's a very touchy subject about how all the Jewish men who have performed very badly over the past five, six, seven years. And so you have both, uh, you know, Weinstein and Epstein, uh, but then you have, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, and you have, um, you know, a, a lot of prominent, uh, you know, wealthy Jewish men who continue to give money to uh, Trump and the GOP. And, you know, what exactly, where did this go wrong? And the list I made are all, uh, that I, I have about 15 or so thinking about, uh, are all men. Um, and so I don't know if how that exactly plays into it, but there is something there, and you know the the Me Too movement and um, and Trumpism. Uh, a lot of powerful Jewish men uh, failed, you know, failed to meet the moment or or just acted, uh, you know, no. really badly. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I've been thinking about it. if anyone has an idea for someone I could talk to about this on the show. You know, <laughs> it's a very delicate subject, obviously. Um, you know, uh, uh, leave, yeah. leave, leave a comment below. But um, but yeah, okay, so. So something else that I've noticed, uh, thinking about the conservative movement, is like you know at certain times it was like a youth movement, and yeah. you know um, you know Buckley yeah. uh, and Bozell sort of like came like right out of college and and wrote the Got a Man at Yale and that other book and mm-hmm. um, and if we look at today, you know it, it, from what as far as I can tell, like there are where where are the young conservative intellectuals is what I'm thinking. All of everyone who's who's gained prominence in the Trump era who's like under 35, 40, like is some form of grifter. Um, and uh-huh. it's people like Charlie Kirk, Candace Owens, Ben Shapiro, Jacob Wool, um, the gun girl, uh, you know, <laughs> right, right. like these are, these are all like <laughs> scam artists of some sort or other. I mean, Shapiro is yeah. in any case, he seems to actually believe in things, but you know, where do you are like, are there, or they're like, you know, the, um, people who, are like bronze bronze age pervert and those like people who are just way <laughs> off into like yeah. you know race realism or or whatever like scientific racism. Yeah. Um and so did you do you see this also are there conservative are there like conservatives under 40 who are not insane? I don't know how old Sorab Amari is. He might be under 40, but um you know uh, and then and then people who are roughly who are like millennial or younger who are attached to the movement. So like a lot of them have sort of jumped ship or, I mean, I'm thinking of Will Wilkinson. He was never a conservative. He was a libertarian, but he's like fully, you know, almost like a democratic socialist or something now. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. what, what do you think about this? Yeah. That's funny. I knew Will slightly 
back when I was a young conservative, uh, when he worked for the Institute for Humane, Institute for Humane Studies, um, which is kind of libertarian, Coke-funded outfit, which I did seminars and events with. So it's been interesting to watch Will um, evolve over the years, as I have. Um, but, you know, to your question of kind of under 40s, uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to say because, you know, someone like Buckley and Bozell, you're right. I mean, there's a whole... I think there's either an article or a book called The Other Side of the 60s, <laughs> meaning there, like, we associate the 60s with like young hippies and Woodstock and things like that. But there was lots of young conservatives who rallied. You know, I mean, the Young Americans for Freedom was started by Buckley. Uh, the founding meeting was at his you know, ancestral home in Sharon, Connecticut. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, you're right. It was a youth movement to some extent. And even if you go back to like the Reagan years, there was a sense of like young conservatives coming to Washington that was in the mix too. But you're right. Now it's not quite the same. Uh, and that the most prominent people are these grifters. I would just say there's a couple things going on that would be worth interesting if I'm trying to be generous. One is I said, Trumpism won't really survive without Trump. And I mean that mostly as a electoral, um, uh, uh, possibility, but I do think intellectually he did kind of, help smash away some conservative orthodoxies that had been long kind of, you know, I don't know, they lingered, I don't know, they were kind of waiting to be blown apart by something like Trump, meaning especially like doctrinaire libertarian economics. Of course, the only thing Trump did was really cut taxes, wage some trade war, that kind of thing. And, but like, and cut some checks over the past year. Right. But you can see that, the, I mean, Trump it wasn't totally implausible to say Trump represented some kind of different stance in terms of political economy than the traditional, more libertarian economic Republican positions had been. And so I think to the extent, you know, the Trump era will give us kind of intellect, younger intellectuals doing interesting things. I think it will be people trying to imagine what a more blue collar, you know, worker friendly Republican economic agenda might be. I mean, I still disagree with these people. I think in a lot of ways, it's 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 not as different as they sometimes make it seem. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I mean, people like Orrin Cass is uh, American Compass Project and some of the younger conservatives who write for that, um, you know, trying to sketch a more worker friendly Republican economic agenda. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think I mean, even people like you've mentioned, Ross Douthat, um, you know, his brand of conservatism, I think now is probably more plausible than it might have been when he and Ryan wrote Sam's Club Republicanism or Grand New Party, it was called. Yes, uh, that was, um, that was the, the article with Sam's Club Republicanism. I right, think it, Grand right. New Party was the... so circa 2008. They were talking about some changes to how the Republican Party handles things like economics. Yeah. And, 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 and Ryan is know, now the president of the American Enterprise Institute, right? Or, or, or something like uh, that. Manhattan Institute. Manhattan Institute. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so he's certainly risen. Yeah. He also, I mean, he, he was a blogging heads guy back in the day and was a great, I mean, he's just like a great, one of the all-time great talkers. Um, yeah. And he is somewhat pulled back from the public stage as far as I can tell, um, uh -huh. uh, for reasons I don't know why. But um, yeah, Ross, I mean, if we were going to put a feather in anyone's cap, over the, for, for on the conservative side over the past few years, I would give it to Ross um, for, you know, pretty consistently, you know, like being right about things more or less. I mean, he was wrong about some big stuff, but you know, he, he didn't abandon yeah. conservatism, but he was pretty much a, uh, often a critic of Trump explicating, you know, conservative ideas for a, the raw dates. And I think an intellectually honest way, uh, that's just yeah. my opinion. 
Uh, but he is also, I mean, I don't know if generally, I think, I mean, he is over 40, I would guess, as is Raihan. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if this arbitrary cutoff I came up with, um, mm-hmm. I don't know if they would fit in. I mean, there's people like... Um, I mean, as a 39-year-old, I'm grateful for the 40 cutoff. <laughs> Um, right, so I, I'm still young. Well, the but, the, the but Ross is maybe if we understand three or four the, years older. Millennials, yeah. the millennial generation is supposedly starts in '81, uh, uh-huh. and so millennials are turning forty this year. The oldest millennials, yeah. um, and so and the media has been obsessed with millennials for twenty plus years. <laughs> um, so yeah, so where like what whether the millennial conservative and, and what are these types doing? I mean, maybe you know, like JD Vance would be a type. Well, he was what I was going to mention. I think it's telling. I mean, I thought of him because. I mean, that book has been one of the, for better or worse, probably worse, one of the most discussed and debated books of the Trump era. Yeah. I do think what you saw was, I mean, it kind of encapsulates a lot of what I've been saying, right? It was pitched as, like, this guy from Trump country uh, now understands um, understands this phenomenon, right? So the book gets published in the midst of Trump. I think it was published in the summer of 2016, actually. So before Trump was elected, but a- after he'd already become the Republican nominee. Or right, so this is Hillbilly thing. Elegy is the title Hillbilly of the book. Elegy, Turned right. into a movie in the past year, and, uh, and Glenn right. Close is now as an Oscar nomination for portraying the grandmother of this, right. this memoir. Uh, so that, you know, that was a breakout book, and I think J.D. is obviously genuinely smarter than um, – Jacob Wool or uh, <laughs> although Jacob Wool somehow right. managed to not end up in prison still as, as yeah, of this recording, so he, he knows yeah. something. Um, yeah. But yeah, he's not an intellectual. Yeah. Um, yeah, but when you look at someone like Vance, it's it's now as you can see it. He it seems like he might run for Senate in in Ohio, or at least that's you know making moves in that direction. So it's really going to be a question: it, Will there actually be something different, substantially, deeply different about his economic program, or? Will it be kind of, you know, some of the same old, maybe some rhetorical moves in one direction, maybe a few policies that seem more worker friendly, um, or will it just be culture war against Silicon Valley? Or, you know, it's uh, when they talk about woke capitalism, it's obvious that the woke part is what really pisses them off, and it's not the capitalism part. And someone like Josh Hawley, you know, he's going after Facebook and some of these tech companies mostly for like censoring conservatives, not because like the concentration of economic power is bad or leading to, you know, certain outcomes that are just generally against the common good or something. It's they're mad that Facebook is censoring or Twitter is censoring uh, conservatives, supposedly. Right. So, I mean, that's to me is the when I think about breakout intellectuals or kind of a rising generation of conservative intellectuals, it really remains to be seen whether they do anything interesting or whether it's just kind of mostly rhetorical shifts, kind of uh, adding new new arguments to updated circumstances. Okay, we had a, a tech problem there and, and lost uh, just a little bit, hopefully not too much, but we're going to uh, move on to uh, one or two more questions. Um, so one thing I do want to ask you about is, you know, as someone who – was in the conservative movement for a part of your life. What uh, what aspects of cons- conservative thinking do you uh, still value or find valuable? Or what do you, um, yeah, I mean, how, do you, I, or was there a total rejection? Or how, how do you understand that? Well, you know, I get asked that question from time to time. And I'm not sure how best to answer it other than to say, 
temperamentally, I know I said I kind of had gone from you know, one pretty, not extreme, but, you know, um, not a particularly squishy moderate conservatism to a leftism that, like, you know, isn't, you know, uh, uh, particularly at the center of our politics either. Uh, so that might give the impression that, like, I'm temperamentally not that conservative. But in some ways, I still am. I mean, I mentioned earlier that I am affiliated with dissent, not like Communist Party publications or something, whatever it would be. And so I do think I'm temperamentally, I still have a sense that, like, politics is complicated. <laughs> like, I'm much more invested in electoral politics than some people on the left, because I don't think, um, or I just think it's, you know, that's how you make change. You could hold out for revolution or you could hold out for some, you know, cataclysmic change. But I'm, I'm still committed to working, to doing what's possible to make the world slightly more just and slightly more decent and slightly more generous to the people who live in it now, then, you know, um, I'm still committed to that. Um, and I'm not knocking other perspectives either. Um, but I'm just saying, you know, that marks me as someone who's working, willing to work within the system in some ways. Um, and I would say kind of when I think about those kinds of questions, I do think, uh, say, one conservative, I, I, this can be overblown. I don't want to, you know, give the wrong impression. But uh, our second episode on how conservatives argue, we look back at um, a book called the Re Albert Hirschman's book, The Re Rhetoric of Reaction. And one of the common things conservatives say is that, well, if you try to make this change to improve things, actually the opposite will happen, <laughs> right? And lots of bad things will come from, try from mucking around and trying to change things too much. And I don't buy that. But I, but I, on the other hand, I don't think change is like cost-free. Right. Or that there's no possibility of unintended consequences. And so I I would like to think that at, at its very best, conservatism involves a certain epistemic humility or a, a, a sense that like the world is complicated and people are complicated. And just like simplistic, straightforward um, change might not always be the way it goes. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't fight for better things or, you know, for a more just economy or healthcare system or whatever it might be. But it's just that like, you know, society involves a lot of moving parts. And, and I think like to the extent um, people on the left kind of can be aware of that, factor that into some of their judgments um, or, or policy recommendations or, or whatever, that's probably something I still carry over for my conservative past. Mm -hmm. And does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. And you know, and I'm the, not uh, trying to say people like I'm the one who knows the world's complex and other people don't. <laughs> I'm I'm not going for that. I'm more or less just trying to say that I do think that like again, the very best conservatism has a certain humility uh, at its heart, and I think sometimes that humility can kind of uh, uh, turn into a more rigid like obstinacy against doing anything at all. You can become too too enamored of complexity. But I, I do think like that sense that human human schemes can go awry, um, that human beings are not perfectible. The old, you know, uh, Isaiah Berlin, crooked timber <laughs> kind of idea. Um, that's, you know, maybe that's because I'm still religious and I believe in original sin and that human beings are a mix of, you know, noble impulses and baser instincts. And that, uh, you know, that kind of anthropology, that view of human beings, I think is one I mean, if there's something interesting about my leftism, it's probably that as a religious person, it, it coexists with these views of uh, human beings that 
are pretty um, not uh, pessimistic, but at least well aware of the fact that you know you're not going to create like the new Soviet man. <laughs> you're not you know transformate utter transformation is not really possible. Right. Okay. So the fallibility of man. Uh, right. <laughs> you're accepting. Yeah. So that's yeah. That's interesting. A uh, very interesting. And I'm thinking you know there's there's parts of the far left who think there's going to be some kind of revolution. And, um, and I don't think that's ever going to happen in America. Um, I mean, we, we, we came close to some sort of collapse, but that d d hasn't happened yet. Um, but also, you know, the, you could trace modern conservative thought to Burke's reaction to the failures of the French Revolution and, um, and you know, the fact that there's always people eager for a revolution, despite the fact that most of them fail and some of them fail, like, horribly uh, with reigns of terror and so forth. Um, so, yeah, that's worth keeping in mind. And also, you know, the, the, I mean, epistemic humility, if I had to, the, you know, find the, the living antonym of epistemic humility, it would be um, former President Donald Trump, who thought he <laughs> he knew more than anyone. He was the expert of everything. Right. Whatever he said was right. And, yeah, so he, you know, um, never listened to anyone except, like, things he would see on Fox News. So, um, so obviously things went awry <laughs> in, in conservatism and, and we, they ventured very far from, from that, um, into this cult of personality around, around Trump. Um, okay. So maybe, maybe this will be the last, the last question. Um, right. so, somewhat, uh, a different topic, but so you, you are an editor at Commonweal and, um, and we have, um, a liberal Catholic president, um, suddenly, uh, <laughs> and, I mean, so so Biden is the second Catholic president. Do, do first question is is, are, is JFK considered a liberal Catholic president or or not? And second, is it like you know, is this like high times at at Commonweal because everyone because it's like your ship has come in that it's, that <laughs> you know a, a liberal Catholic faith is is now um, uh, living in inside yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Joe Biden. Yeah, well, it's interesting because uh, I'm not a big JFK fan. Um, I've read enough Gary Wills and Seymour uh, Hirsch and all that to, you know, idolize Kennedy. I, I shouldn't quite quote Christopher Hitchens a second time in this episode, but <laughs> he has he has the great line. He said, "Do you remember where you were the day JFK almost got us all killed? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Cuban Missile Crisis, etc." Um, yeah, as, as time has gone on, I mean, during our childhood, I think there was still this idea that he was like this golden figure, but yeah, kind of yeah. Camelot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, a, yeah. Mystical, a mystical figure um, almost, and, and yeah, and but so it's, it's the, but it's that, the mythology has has definitely been tarnished as more and more comes out, yeah. and people look at his yeah. what he actually believed and uh, did. Yeah, but you know, more importantly, it's I hadn't quite thought of it this way, but and if you remember when Kennedy was running for president, he had to go down to Texas and tell everyone, "I'm not going to take orders from the Pope," right? right? Um, so my friend, uh, who's a, a theologian at Villanova University, Massimo Fagioli. Uh, he has a book that he published recently called Joe Biden and Catholicism in the United States. And he says that Biden is our first president to publicly express a Catholic soul, um, meaning he's like publicly Catholic in a way JFK wasn't and maybe even couldn't have been. Um, and I was struck by just how Catholic Biden's inauguration was. Um, you know, uh, 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 Father Leo O'Donovan, he, the former president of Georgetown University, gave you know one of the prayers. The, the Bible Biden put his hand on had the big Celtic cross on it. He quoted Saint Augustine, who called us a, a saint of my church, during his inaugural address. Um, and I think even as a candidate, that because because Biden's 
very public grieving. You know, his, his wife and daughter killed in the car accident. His son, Bo, died of brain cancer uh, in 2015. Like, he's grieved an unusual amount publicly. Yeah. And so I think his, his faith has been very bound up with that. I mean, it was Father O'Donovan who gave, um, who said the funeral mass for Bo, the same Catholic priest who mm-hmm. gave the prayer at his inauguration. So I think Biden kind of wears his Catholicism on his sleeve. And it's, it's, um, it's sort of from a different era. Like when people thought Catholicism could, could maybe be a part of, you know, um, kind of liberal mainstream politics in the U.S., sort of that, you know, mid-century whatever, um, right, uh, for better or worse. Yeah, I mean, so uh, I think – and, and that, But now, you know, like, you know, post – I, I mean, I, I'm about to publish an essay on the religious left, and one of the points in it is that um, uh, Gary Wills is the great phrase, the, ra- the reign of the two Johns. John F. Kennedy and Pope John the Twenty Third, who called the Second Vatican Council. But we now know that, like the Second Vatican Council, is a huge point of contention in the Catholic Church. And a lot of the right wing critics uh, of Pope Francis in the Church, and um, were people who also, some of them, like Archbishop Vigano, uh, were a part of the Stop the Steal rally in Washington. So, like, not like it just seems like things have fractured. Right. And the culture wars emerged kind of after Biden was already an adult. And he seems to kind of be that throwback to like a pre-culture war, uh, you know, <laughs> happier sense that like his faith is just you know a, a part of his democratic politics. And it's all, you know, it all kind of works. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, he wears it on his sleeve. And I even like the American Recovery Act, uh, the National Catholic Reporter editorialized this was Catholic social teaching in hmm. practice, which, you know, from one angle, it. That that's you know plausible perhaps, um, but so I don't know. Biden's you know not a hero of the left uh, by any means. I think I've been pleasantly surprised by how his administration has been going in the sense of things like saying deficits don't really matter that much, and the key thing is to spend money now. Like that seems like he's learned lessons from the Obama years. For sure. So like uh, as a as a left Catholic or however you want to describe me. Like I'm, I'm probably fonder of Biden than I would be otherwise because he's this Catholic grandfather. Sam, my podcast co-host, once said, "Matt, I said I don't know why I just have this soft spot for like 78 year old Catholic grandpa Joe Biden." <laughs> and uh, Sam said, "Matt, that's because he's the same age as all of your priests." <laughs> and I thought, "Well, that's that's kind of true." That's interesting. Um, and and there yeah. was, you know, uh, there were people even who were not Jewish who called Bernie Sanders Zadie, which is the Yiddish <laughs> word for for grandfather. Um, yeah. So there is, yeah, there's some connection there. And, I, and I've and i noted this on Twitter um, when what you were saying about Biden somehow trend, like hovering above the culture war somehow. Uh, Biden is not a baby boomer. He was born in 42 or 43. Uh, and, yeah. and as I put it, you know, half jokingly, uh, he actually believes this shit. Um, you know, it, like he's not, um, you know, it, there's less irony uh, in, in, in what he says. It's seemingly, um, than, you know, a, a baby, you know, someone who was like 10 years younger uh, would, yeah. have, would have had. Yeah. And um, so his, yeah, and so his politics are different. He grew up when they're probably, what, you tell me that there must have been actual, still anti-Catholic di- discrimination in his childhood that his living relative, and especially his living relatives must have experienced. Um, and so that is, you know, that mm-hmm. is different. And um and yeah, and so he, you know, lived, he was an adult when Vatican II was happening. Exactly, right. I mean, he would have heard the, the last, the Latin, uh, sorry, the Mass in Latin until he was in his 20s, I think. 
Um, but also, I, I mean, he does come from a sort of particular Irish Catholic subculture. I know, like, there's a lot of jokes about he's not actually that Irish, but I don't think that means it's it's false that he didn't exist in that milieu, right, uh, it, growing up. And it's, you know, when you look at, like, the history of the Catholic Church in the United States, um, it was that period of time when, like, Catholics were going from ethnic enclaves, like, you know, Irish Catholic or Italian Catholic, to the church kind of being more mainstream. Like, John F. Kennedy's election was a significant inflection point in that. So I think Biden kind of has that weird kind of one foot in both worlds where he, he really did experience a different kind of culture, um, especially different kind of Catholic culture when he was growing up, probably, and then was a part of like Catholics entering the mainstream. And I think that when I said he kind of wears his faith on his sleeve and kind of kind of, you know, it just mixes in with his political views. Um, I think that's that's kind of what I mean. He kind of has some of that confidence of an older era that, that predates the culture wars when faith was I mean, I don't want to say it was less contentious, but it whatever it was, it wasn't the culture wars exactly as we have, uh, you know, lived through them. Yeah. So I, I, I find Biden actually extremely interesting as a religious figure. And um, I actually, you know, I might get in trouble for saying this, but even his calls for like healing and unity and dialogue or whatever, I tend not to dismiss them. As you said, I think he does believe it. And I actually, and I think as like a religious person, as a Christian, I'm like something like reconciliation. And it, you know, it can't happen without truth. It can't happen with like, you know, admission of wrongdoing on certain people's parts. But like, it, who can't look at our country and think something has gone really wrong, right? And And like something like, more just basic decency between us, not least in our politics, wouldn't be a bad thing. <laughs> like, yes. And, and for Biden, I think I think there is there's something from his faith that that stems from too. I'm not saying he wouldn't say you, you have to be Catholic to think that. Of course not. I'm just saying I, there are certain things about Biden that I probably uh, interpret relatively sympathetically because I see them as stemming from real convictions he has rather than just being the typical rhetoric of kumbaya you know let's all let's all get together and be cool together and yeah get along <laughs> yeah you know? and whether you know whether some sort of national healing after the various crises of the past two decades is possible i i don't know it seems like we 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 do need it i have no idea if it if it could happen or if we're somehow <laughs> fractured yeah. in, in in a way that can't be fixed. The fact that he's off offered himself as a healing, calming presence, I saying a return to normalcy, you know, was, was what he was offering. And that's kind of what we're getting. Um, with, because the, it was such, the Trump years were such an aberration and, and people don't want to be thinking about the president every hour of the day and whether he's doing something crazy or not. Um, so yeah. So, I mean, I've, yeah, I've been surprised by how things have played out, over the past two uh, two months, and, uh, and I think yeah, I think a, a lot of people, including myself, I thought you know I thought he would just be Sleepy Joe, um, uh, sort of like underestimated um, what he could achieve or, or, or wanted to achieve, and it's it's you know it's, uh. it's it's very everything is very slim margin, and so who knows who knows what will happen, but I you know more optimistic than I. Mm -hmm. was uh, a couple a couple months ago um okay why don't uh, anything else you want to say should we end it there um i think we've gone on over an hour at this point yeah uh i'm fine okay let's, let's <laughs> end it there me. so thanks for yeah. thanks for coming on um and so it's uh know your enemy 
is the name of the podcast. Links to everything will be below on the blogging site. Uh, check it Including out. Including our Patreon. Yes, you're on Patreon. <laughs> and then do you also have an right. offer with Descent Magazine where if you subscribe to yes. one or the other, you yeah. get both or something? Yeah, I, sh- I should have said that Descent uh, sp- sponsors the podcast, so to speak. Uh, sponsor seems to be the best language we've come up with. But uh, as part of that, they not only help us promote it, but if you subscribe for $10 a month on our Patreon, you get a free digital subscription to Descent. So, uh, which is, you know, I love Descent. Um, I'm a subscriber. I, of course, I write for them and, you know, are kind of very involved with them. But I think it's a really important magazine with a political tradition I, I you know, uh, identify with and, and think is important. So um, it's a great two-for-one deal. Um, and, of course, everyone should read Commonweal Magazine, too, um, especially if you want insight into our liberal Catholic president. Uh, no no better place to read. Yeah. Yeah, just a side note, uh, you work with um, – um, my former editor at this aforementioned humor magazine, um, Molly, who is from Scranton, has she written on Biden Scranton? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if she has. I should ask her because I, I edit her most of the time. I edit her columns for Commonweal, and uh, you know, you go back and forth about what you're going to write about. And I should. Uh, she is Molly from Scranton. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah, so that I, I will just, if you want to slip a, slip an idea to, uh, to one of your writers. Um, yeah, so check that out. Check it all out. You're also on Twitter. Is it just Math, Matthew Sittman? Yeah, at Matthew Sittman. Um, and I am <coughs> at RACW on Twitter. And, you know, you can follow us, subscribe to us, uh, do all sorts of things. You know, you can rate and review this particular podcast, Culturally Determined, on iTunes, and that helps the algorithms and so forth. Okay, so let's wrap it up there. Uh, Matthew, thanks Thank for you so much. Thanks for doing pleasure. this, and thanks to all of our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time. Alrighty.